Blog Talk Radio. Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I'm so happy you've joined me for this week's show. Let's start with some announcements. It's the fall, and that means conference season, so let me tell you where I'm going to be. And you can get all the information about this at teachmetotalk.com. But I'll be in Indianapolis on Thursday, November 12th, and Friday, November 13th, teaching two different courses. The first day is Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. The second day is a brand new course that I'm so excited about. Is it Autism, Recognizing and Treating Autism in Toddlers? If you've not gotten a copy of my ebook, get it, get it, get it. It's, this new course is based on that. And again, you can get it. You can find out the information about it at teachmetotalk.com, but it's available on Amazon. And as a really convenient, cheap, Easy ebook, so you can read it on your phone, on your iPad, whenever you have a few minutes while you're waiting between appointments or waiting for, you know, at gosh, in line somewhere. It's a that's when I read ebooks on my phone, and that's when I found that that I can squeeze in reading something that I really, really am dying to get to read, but I don't think I have time to fit it into my daily activity. So that course is based on the ebook. And again, if you don't have your own copy, go ahead and, and I'd encourage you to get that. I'll also be in Charleston, West Virginia on Friday, November 20th, teaching that same course. Is it autism? December 3rd and December 4th, teaching the Is It Autism course. And then finishing up in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois on Thursday, December 10th and Friday, December 11th, and again, teaching that two-day format with building verbal imitation and toddlers on the first day and the Is It Autism course on the second day. So I hope that you'll join me there. All right, other um, announcements that I want to make. I am just overwhelmed. That's probably not the right word, but flooded, let's say that, with so many great questions from therapists and parents. And I do everything I can to answer those questions, but the very best way to get a response is to leave a comment at teachmetotalk.com under a post that I've called, have a question, I'm here to help. It's right there on the homepage. So if you have something that you've wanted an answer for or wanted to hear a show about or see an article or a post about, Send that question to me there. That's the very best, most consistent way to reach me. All right, let's talk about today's show. This is show number 271, if you're kind of keeping up with that to decide if you've listened or not. And today we're going to be talking about a real-life scenario, and they almost always are, but these are <laughs> this is a scenario that's happening to me right now with a little boy that I'm seeing on my own caseload. And I want to talk about what's going on with him, and why this has been such a fun, fun family to work with, uh, even though it's been a little bit tricky. And here's the rub here. He's been diagnosed with autism. I've known this little boy for over a year, almost a year and a half. He came to me, um, and I saw him just for a one-time assessment. He was already getting services. His parents wanted a second set of eyes. And so I just did a uh, one-hour consultation where I basically just talked with his parents, got a little bit of history, and then just made some recommendations about what they could do at home with home programming. I couldn't see this little boy at that time on an ongoing basis for lots of different circumstances, but kind of we left it there, left his parents with some recommendations. I knew he was getting therapy. Fast forward a year. Got an email from his mom, and again, there's some uh, there are family who lives in the same town that I do, and she said, you know, we've officially gotten that autism diagnosis. I'm having a hard time with his therapies, getting everything lined up. He's been in therapy for a year. We haven't had much luck. Is there any way you could see me, even if it's just for a one-time thing, to kind of help get us back on track? And so I agreed to do that. And as I started talking with mom over the phone and via email and then went to see him, I started really realizing all the different factors that have gone into 
um, him not having very much success with therapy. And here, the bottom line is, he's hard. <laughs> he's really, really, really hard. And so we all have kids like that, and we all have children that make us, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and think, you know, as a, as a speech language pathologist or another kind of therapist, what am I going to do with him? Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing what I need to do here. He's, what other ideas can I try? And so I like it when I get a kid like this because it challenges me and it makes me know that I'm, I'm about to grow. <laughs> I'm about to learn some new things. And so if you're a younger therapist or a newer therapist and you, you have a kid like that right now and you're really just scared, thinking, what am I going to do? I'm not sure that I'm addressing what he needs, all those things. Instead of being overwhelmed or instead of, just kind of treading water and thinking, well, I only have to stay in six months and then he'll be on someone else's caseload or he'll age off or whatever. Try to look at it as an opportunity to teach yourself some new things and to try to do some things that maybe you've not done before or to really delve into an area like we're going to talk about today with play that maybe you, you think, gosh, I've never had to really analyze a kid like this. I've never had to really dig this deep to figure out what would work and what might be successful. And again, I'm just so thrilled that I've gotten to work with this family because our kids, our clients are who teach us what we need to know. <laughs> and so since I've you know, done this job for over 20 years now and seen thousands of children, it's so exciting to me that I can still have a kid that I've not encountered this particular set of circumstances before or that I've had it in the past and I just haven't known how to handle it with the same kinds of things that we're doing now. And certainly I think that's more the case uh, with this little guy than than not ever having seen this before because it's a really, really common problem. Lots of our little friends who are on the autism spectrum have no interest in playing with toys and that's what we're going to talk about today. What are some things you can try? Now, I've done some topics, some shows about this with the same topic, and I've written some things about it. But again, guys, this has been uh, the kind of little friend that doesn't fit many of the standard kinds of things that I've done before where I have had some success. And it has caused me to kind of take a step back and think, how can I tease this out even more? How can I break this down even beyond what I've done for other children. You know, again, that phrase, dig deep. What can I do that I haven't done yet or that his other folks that he's seen in this year and a half? But what what if, what have we not tried yet? What's kind of the missing link? And certainly for a kid like this with autism who, um, let's just kind of talk about all of his factors and, and let's begin with that big premise, though, with, he doesn't like toys. He doesn't play with toys. And again, parents will tell you a lot of times when you talk about play with toys and you're just you're just asking these questions in your initial assessment, in your initial few visits of getting to know a child, a lot of times parents will just assume if a child isn't playing with toys, it is because that there's just there's no um like factor there's it's got to be kind of based on his personality and you know if if he likes a toy or if he doesn't and I've just found in all my experience that is rarely the case <laughs> usually it's that a child doesn't know how to play with toys and and this is how I talk about it with parents you know sometimes I can see when I'm talking with a parent about that and I'm asking about toys you know, they say, well, he just doesn't like toys or she doesn't like very many toys. She just has a few little favorite things that she likes to do. And sometimes when when I kind of go there with a parent and say, you know, I don't really think that's it. I don't think this is about her preferences at all. I think it's that she doesn't understand what to do with a toy or she doesn't know exactly what the sequence of play should look like or how she should use her hands or what the toy is even for. She doesn't even know that she should like it or not like it. You know, to to you it might look like boredom or disinterest or avoidance. But really it's that there's no skill level there. And whether it be a cognitive skill, they don't understand how the toy works. 
It could be that it's more related to motor skills, and we'll talk about all that too because certainly all those things are factors. But when you begin to have a conversation with parents about toys, and if you're a mom in this situation and you've said, my kid doesn't like toys, I've spent thousands of dollars on this whole house full of toys and I can't find anything that he'll play with for more than a minute or two. I'd ask you just to kind of take a step back from that and try to look at it in a different way. With, again, this isn't based on preferences or his choices with, you know, eh, I can take it or, you know, or leave it here. It really is based on something that's rooted in development and rooted in neurological maturity, uh, if you kind of want to think about it in that way. So let's talk about the issues that my little friend was having. And let me just say, too, for those of you who are thinking, why why are you worried about play? You're supposed to be teaching them how to talk. Isn't that what speech therapy is all about? Let me just say <laughs> that play is such an important part of every child's life. And it's how children learn. And it's how they learn about the world. It's how they learn about themselves. It's how they learn about other people. You know, play is just kind of the foundational piece there. And a lot of times... Therapists, especially speech pathologists, if you if you have a kid with with huge needs, like a kid, my little friend with autism is is nonverbal, and so immediately you think, well, that that's what we're here for. Uh, we want him to talk. We want him to communicate. And of course, that is true. That is absolutely true. And that is our overall long term goal for not only this little guy but every single child on our caseload. But for some of our kids, there are so many factors and so many areas that we have to pay attention to that, again, talking is not a realistic goal. And it's certainly not for this little guy yet because he's missing so many of those prerequisite pieces. And so let's just talk about all the factors that accompany a kid like this, that accompany not seeming to know how to play with toys or doesn't like toys or whatever, you, however you want to characterize that. Let's look at all of these other factors. Um, and, again, all of these things play into this overall developmental profile of a child who, who doesn't like to play with toys or who isn't playing with toys yet. Um, and, and just think about the children on your caseload that you've had this happen with, especially at the beginning or maybe it's a child you're seeing now or if you're a parent who you saw the title of the show and you thought, yes, I'm going to listen to this because this describes my child. This is what we're going through here. And it might not be that your child won't play with any toys. It may just be he sticks to one or two favorites and that's it. You know, he seems pretty ambivalent about new things that you bring home. You know, you may do everything you can to try to expand his interest, but he's just not really into anything beyond one or two little favorites. So this, these things may be factors that you've not considered yet. So let's talk about what these other contributing um, areas are, and we'll link them to why it makes play with toys difficult. And again, remember that we're looking at all this as a foundation for language development, as a foundation for understanding what words mean and for eventually being able to use those words to communicate with other people, to request things that a child wants to do, or to participate in a back-and-forth conversation, to respond to questions. All of those ways that we use communication, and again, certainly that's our overall goal for everybody, but play is a, is a big, big part of that, especially with toddlers. And when we have children who don't toys, we know that there are some other developmental red flags and some other developmental areas that we should be addressing. So these could be the child that you're thinking about or working with or your own child could have all of these or just some of these. And again, some of these are inherent to receiving a diagnosis like autism, as my little friend has, or um, you may not be at that point yet. You may be thinking about or working with a child who's not yet diagnosed, um, but who may have some of these other red flags or who may not. But let's just kind of go through this. I want to set the stage so you can understand exactly what's going on with my little client, and then we'll kind of talk through 
what his treatment plan has looked like, what it looks like right now, and hopefully in another few months I'll be able to keep at it <laughs> and keep working with his wonderful family and him and then be able to kind of give you progress reports and updates as we work through what's going on with this one real live kid. All right, so factors that contribute to a lack of play with toys for my little friend. He has little social engagement with others. And so how this affects play with toy is when you try to introduce a new toy or when you're just giving him something to see if he likes it. If you were involved, that almost always means that he's going to walk away. He has such a hard time. Now, this is getting better, but let's kind of go back to it's October now, but what I'm going to talk about him in terms of where he was in July when I first started working with him again or, or was reintroduced to him. But just a hard, hard time interacting with other people. And again, this makes it super difficult if you're trying to engage him and trying to get him involved with you with play because you are there and are trying. It's it, especially at the beginning, almost always guaranteed that he didn't want to be involved because he has such a hard time relating to other people. That is a core deficit of autism. So if you're dealing with that situation with a child that you're working with or with your own child, children who frequently walk away, who avoid other people, who don't routinely seek out other people to interact with. If you have a kid who just kind of likes to do his own thing all the time or you thought, oh, my gosh, he was such a good baby. He just never made a peep during the day. You know, those kinds of things are not normal. <laughs> and toddlers and babies who are developing normally are, as I say in conferences, and I hope this, this plays as well with you listening as it does when I talk about it in, in real life with people, but I just I'd like to say Toddlers who are developing normally are little pests. <laughs> you can't do anything by yourself. And again, I'm not meaning that in a derogatory way. I'm using it just as an example that that typically developing one and two and three-year-olds don't usually enjoy being alone for long periods of time. They crave interaction with other people. If you're a mom parenting a typically developing toddler, you know how hard it is for you to complete things like making a phone call, taking a shower, going to the restroom. They want to be with you. They are there clinging to you for dear life. And not only that, they want you to participate. They want you to do things for them. They're making requests. They're, they're wanting you to pay attention to them. They're showing you things. And so if you're not seeing that, as, as we weren't with our little friend, he just has such a hard time including other people with what he's doing. And so, again, that makes it hard to introduce new toys because unless you're just going to open it and walk away and see what he'll do with it, it makes it very, very difficult to teach him how to do anything new because he doesn't have a model. He doesn't, he doesn't tolerate someone being there or certainly didn't in July showing him how to do something new. That made him immediately want to get out of there. You know, have you? I know you've heard the term fight or flight, meaning the kinds of reactions that we have to unpleasant circumstances. If we are threatened in some way, let's say that, you know, an animal, and I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to offend anyone, you know, who's a real animal uh, lover here, but let's just say that you had a strange dog who approached you, and what would your reaction, and you thought the dog might harm you in some way? your fight or flight reaction kicks in. You know, are you going to defend yourself against the dog or are you just going to try to get away from there? A lot of times our little friends with autism have strong reactions to being with other people. Now, not all children with autism are like that, and that certainly is not – I don't want to mischaracterize uh, autism saying that you, you won't have a child with any kind of social connection because that's absolutely not true. But for a lot of our little friends, especially our friends who are most severely affected, they do have some of those, even if they're not emotionally charged reactions to other people, they just don't seem to want to want to have much to do with other people a lot of the time, especially if you're new or especially in this situation with me. Me coming into his home, he had had enough experience with other therapists in his home, and they tried to do some things in a clinical setting, hoping that would improve his participation in 
progress. But the truth is, he just doesn't interact with other people very much. And again, that's a core deficit of children with autism. So you can see how that makes playing with toys difficult for him because there's it leaves little opportunity for him to learn from other people when his main goal is get away, get away, get away. Interaction has not been pleasant. I don't get this. I don't have that core need to want to engage with other people. You know, I just want you to leave me alone. I want to do my own thing. So that that's one factor that's made it hard. The second factor here is we know that when play isn't coming along, we can suspect that there may be cognitive delays. Now, let's think about cognition and talk about cognition for a while. What does cognition mean? It means how a child learns, how he thinks, how he remembers, how he plans, all of those, how he pays attention, all of those cognitive processes that we just kind of take for granted. And again, these are things you can't really see with a toddler. <laughs> You know, you can't really test. You can't say, I want you to pay attention to this for as long as you can, and I'm going to measure your attention here. It doesn't work that way. You know, you can't, you can't really, um, you, you, when you think about traditional cognitive testing, we think about IQ tests when children are older or standardized tests. You can't really, we have standardized tests for toddlers, but we don't really think about measuring IQ in kind of that traditional way when children are, and adults are older where we ask, a question or administer a test and we get a score here. It's a little bit more complex with babies and toddlers, but we, we know this little guy has some cognitive delays. It's been confirmed <laughs> with the, the battery of tests that he did for his autism assessment, but then just looking at how he interacts with this world. He, we know that he has some difficulty with problem solving, meaning that if he can't get something to work out, he just kind of gets up, just walks away. <laughs> doesn't really bother him all that much. And again, he's a kid who's not pitching big fits or having huge reactions, although that kind of happened at the beginning. But more often than not, his way to deal with something he doesn't understand or interested in is just to walk away. And I know that happens with other kinds of kids too. And again, sometimes we'll blame that on the next thing that we're going to talk about is lack of motivation meaning that whatever you're trying to do is not fun enough. There's not enough oomph involved for the child to want to do it. It doesn't make enough sense to the child for him to persist in doing whatever activity you've set up for him to do or whatever play it is. It just it just doesn't turn him on for whatever reason. He just doesn't feel the need to keep going with that. And so, again, it's hard to kind of separate, well, is, is he doing this because he doesn't understand it, meaning the cognitive piece, or is it that it's just not something that he's ever seen before, that lack of exposure, so he doesn't even know that he likes it or doesn't like it yet because he hasn't had enough experience? <coughs> that certainly could play a role with that as well. Excuse me. Uh, but certainly this little guy has what a lot of professionals might call a lack of motivation, meaning that he doesn't like very many things. It's difficult to um, in, engage him or get him to do a lot of different kinds of play because he just seems like, eh, I, I don't really care for that. I'm, I'm not into that. That doesn't do it enough for me. And this is important to know and kind of consider <laughs> because it means that you don't you don't just chalk it up to well, he doesn't like anything, I don't know what I'm going to do with this kid, or that's just the way he is, or whatever, you you know I, I have to turn this around and find things that he does like. If traditional toys don't do it for him for whatever reason, what will motivate him? What will make it worth it to him to stay with me and stay with mom and persist and complete this activity? I mean, how many times as a therapist have you said, if you will just do this, you will like it? I mean, we don't say that, but we think it, don't we? When we have a really enticing activity that we know that tons of other children have liked and that we get a kid there who just doesn't seem to want to do it for whatever reason and a lot of times, you know, they're just kind of walking away or, balking at, at even playing with a new toy and I think how do you know you don't like it you don't know enough about it to determine that or not you know and we ha kind of have to 
force is the wrong word, but we have to persist so that a kid has enough exposure and experience with something so that he can decide if he likes it or not. And again, that gives us information with, well, he doesn't like this, let me move on to this. He doesn't like that, let me move on to that. Certainly that's something that we should be considering as a part of determining treatment strategies and determining what we're, our materials and what activities that we would try with a child. So certainly lack of motivation does play a part and it has with our little guy trying to figure out what, what he likes and what he will um, consider worth it enough to be able to work for and uh, participate and, and stay with. Um, for long enough for us to help him learn that he does like some things that he didn't seem to like before. Another factor that I sort of mentioned is my little guy has some uncoordinated fine motor skills. Now, his gross motor skills are fantastic. He loves running. He loves jumping. He almost is like a little... uh, uh, just a a daredevil or a little performer like a tightrope walker because he can walk on the back of his couch and, you know, make huge (laughs) leaps from one piece of furniture to the next, never falls down, hardly, hardly gets hurt. You know, he has a real high pain tolerance. So just lots and lots of gross motor strengths, but he has a hard time using both hands together. You know, and OTs would call that, you know, a lack of bilateral play or, um, you know, using two hands to do something. He might try to do it with one hand or the other. He kind of looks a little bit, um, you, you can tell that he's, he may, he looks a little cautious when he's playing, but when you dive in a little deeper, you realize that that's not really it. It's just that he doesn't always know how to coordinate his little hands together. Um, clapping is something that this three-year-old has rarely done until recently. And so when you think about bilateral hands together, that's, that's something that babies learn how to do before they're one usually is bring their little hands together. Now, he certainly can do it functionally when he's, drinking from a cup, although more often than not he's just using one hand now because he's three and he's older and he can handle the sippy cup and he certainly has the strength to do that. But when you look at lots of different um, daily routines or activities where he would use his hand, hands, hand or hands together, he's pretty limited. He doesn't brush his own teeth yet, doesn't brush his hair, doesn't really eat with utensils. He still finger feeds. So these are signs to you that he is having some difficulty with fine uh, motor skill development. So that certainly has been an issue with him learning how to play with toys. And, again, this is a kid that unless you're really paying attention and really assessing him and really digging a little deeper, you know, he's a kid who's running circles around you and he was into things in his home and in his classroom so unless you're really paying attention and, and seeing what can he do with his little hands, it's something that you might miss, especially as a speech pathologist, because frankly, unless we're considering the whole child, sometimes we're only thinking about how does he talk, how does he understand words, without really thinking about how play skills and fine motor development contribute to cognition and then certainly play a big part in uh, filling in those in that foundation so that Language, again, becomes meaningful. All right, another issue that my little guy has that has prevented him from playing with a a big variety of toys is he has limited consistent responses to anything that makes sound. So, again, that rules out people who talk. (laughs) He hasn't really been into that, so, of course, he doesn't understand a lot of, he's coming along now, but doesn't always follow commands doesn't always respond when you call his name. Um, and so how how does this relate to toys? Bells and whistle toys don't impress this little friend. <laughs> he doesn't really care if the toy makes a cool sound because auditory input to him just isn't that big of a deal. It's non a lot of it has been non meaningful. And so when you're thinking, oh, you know, what what makes a good toy? What's a toy that he would like? A lot of times we do go to those toys that make noise and that have uh, cool little sound effects because they get a child's attention. And so for this little friend, 
that hasn't been relevant at all. He hasn't been into that at all. And he does like movies, but, you know, he'll watch the movies even without the sound. And so that tells you for him that's mostly a visual uh, activity. And so that's kind of something you can think about, too, and something you may ask your parents of your clients when you have a kid who's really stuck on movies and who you're trying to kind of tease out diagnostically what's going on and you're figuring out how meaningful language has been. And and let me just say, too, this little guy's had his hearing checked. It's not that he can't hear. And if you haven't had an audiological evaluation done with clients, that's certainly something that you've got to rule out. Children have to hear before they can talk and before they can understand language. But at the same time, even activities that you would think involve auditory input or hearing something that he enjoys, the part of the activity that, that he likes. So even for movies, again, that, that hasn't been been beneficial for him. So you can imagine trying to kind of come up with toys or present him toys if we're banking on getting a response from him because it, the toy makes a cool sound, just forget it because that doesn't mean a lot to him at all. Another factor for him has been a really reduced attention span. Now, if he likes something, like his movie, he'll sit through the whole thing. But for virtually everything else, you get about five seconds of attention before he decides he's moving on. Now, some of that is because his little sensory system is always on high alert, meaning the run, 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 go, 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 go. So something has to really be exciting in his on his own little terms for him to want to participate for more than, again, about five seconds. That's the first couple of sessions. That's about attention-wise what we got with something and certainly something that his parents have had three years of experience with, <laughs> with him having that really, really, really short attention span. So that has been a contributing factor. And then we've talked about a sensory system. So look at that. Those are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven factors that we've had to think about and tease out. The social engagement piece, the cognitive piece, his motivation piece, motivation and reward, meaning what does he like, what's worth it to him, what does he show some interest in. He's that little um, motor skills piece, and again, you have to look at that pretty closely because if you were just judging motor skills, you know, for a kid who can run and jump and climb and almost swim, you know, those, the gross motor skills are coming along. It's his fine motor skill development that's been a problem and certainly what has created this situation with not, not fully knowing what to do with his little hands to play with a toy. Plus the inconsistent response to anything he hears or auditory input, plus the short attention span, plus his little um, sensory system need of having to be in constant motion. So those are all the areas that we have decided play a factor in him not wanting to play with toys or not playing with toys. And again, you can kind of overlook some of these things sometimes and just chalk it up to, well, he doesn't like toys or he doesn't like that toy. And unless you really, really tease out all of these other issues, you're not getting a comprehensive look at all of the different issues that are going on. And if you just try to treat one of these issues without addressing the other uh, factors, you may not make very much progress or make any leeway here. Um, because you're not looking at all of the factors and uncovering all of the the needs that this particular child has. So what do you do for this kind of kid? <laughs> what works? What doesn't work? Let me just talk about what we've done so far and give you an idea of the things that I've thought about as we've come up with treatment strategies for him. And I also want to talk about the things that didn't work because so many times we go to conferences as therapists or we read books or read research studies and a lot of times we're only highlighting what has worked and then so we try that with a client and then when it doesn't work, we're kind of left thinking, now what do I do? Or, or this happens a lot in conferences. You only see perfect clips. 
you only see video clips of when the strategy has been completely 100% successful. And that's not how real life is. <laughs> real life speech therapy with real, you know, real life kids, it hardly ever goes perfectly, does it? And so I'm going to talk about the things that I thought would work that haven't been as successful. And we could always trace it back to one of the reasons that we've already talked about, or uh, I think occasionally, you know, a new little factor will arise that we had not thought about before. But I do want to share the things that I thought should work that didn't, just so that you can get an idea of um, the underlying processes that we should be using in therapy and thinking, okay, why didn't this work? Let me try this. Well, this didn't work probably because of this factor, which I didn't really consider. So let's see how we can change that so we can be a little bit more successful. And this is what therapy is all about. This is what makes this job so incredibly rewarding because we get to be detectives like this and we get to tease out exactly what's going on and determine, well, this didn't work, so let me try this, let me try that. I like that. I like that variety. I like that that um, wondering, oh, is this going to be it? Is this going to be the the step that I've missed? Is this what I haven't thought about before? Is this what I'm kind of kicking in for this kid? And, again, that's what makes this job really, really exciting. But sometimes we don't think about that. We'll, we'll read an expert's work or we'll go to a conference and we only see perfection or we only see the end result without considering the weeks and weeks or months and months of tweaking an activity or even kind of the struggle with that didn't work. What do I try now? So I want to be sure that I'm presenting that very realistic picture of how complex this child has been in determining what might work and what will produce results that, again, we're we're talking about his play, but remember our overall long-term goal is language. And so we want to be sure that everything we're doing is marching toward helping this child learn how to communicate. And for so many of our little guys, again, we can't start with talking at that first session. They have so many other foundational pieces that they haven't acquired yet, and we have to back up which I say all the time, back up to where they are developmentally and figure out how can we start exactly where they are at that just right developmental level and then move them forward. So what do we do for this little guy? Well, remember what I said his primary problem, his core, let's not say problem, His one of his core issues is, and again, all children with autism struggle on some level with social responsiveness and with social communication, meaning that they don't do as we would expect them to do for their age with um, that back-and-forth communication piece. So we had to look at how we could get that going more consistently so that he would allow other people to play with him, to engage with him, so that he would routinely let other people be a part of his world so that other people could join him in what he's experiencing and so he can participate with other people because, guys, without that without that peace, without that social peace, communication is irrelevant, okay? You have to begin with that back and forth interaction, social engagement, reciprocal, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> You have to begin with that piece first and foremost with a child. You know, I just got a, an email from a therapist who said, I'm working with this little boy with ASD right now, and here's the rub. He only, Here's what's going on. He only will interact with his mother. He really won't do many of these things with me. And she said, Which, what should I do? How do I treat a kid like this? Is it worth me continuing to try to get a social response from him or should I just move on and do other things? Is it worth my time to use you know, precious therapy time to work on this when, when she said she thinks the, the kid feels like, eh, I've already got that skill. I'm not going to necessarily have to work on that with you. Let's just kind of talk about that a little bit. Interaction is the foundation for communication. Knowing that another person is there, that you can make requests of, that you can have a have a conversation with, who 
you can respond to them. That piece is essential to communication. And some kids, frankly, and most kids with autism, well, all kids with autism struggle with this to some degree, but a lot of our little friends do have a fairly decent connection with their parents versus how they interact with other people. So comparatively speaking, their social skills are as good as they can be only with their mom and dad or only with, you know, a parent and maybe their siblings. And so that's one of the reasons when we are assessing children for autism, that's one of the, now the recommendation is, is that we consider a child's social interaction with others beyond his immediate family because so many times children, toddlers especially who are nonverbal, they are almost hyper-connected sometimes to their parent because they know on some level they struggle with this and their parents are their lifeline. So they are super attached, particularly uh, most of the time it's been to moms when I've seen it because they know. And so sometimes that's what makes a parent miss a diagnosis of autism because they'll say, well, he can't have autism because he loves me. And we know that, of course, he loves you. You're his mom. You've been his world. We would expect that. But we really have to look at interaction and the social piece and how he does with other people beyond um, the immediate caregivers. It just so happens with my little guy that, of course, he had a good uh, established emotional connection with his parents, but he did, still didn't do very much with them at all that didn't involve caregiving routines. So as far as just playing with his parents, that didn't happen very much. And so for kids like this, that's where we start. And so, you know, if you've listened to the show for any length of time or followed teachmetotalk.com or seen me live in courses, I always talk about how important social games are. And that's the starting point that we did with this kid too. And again, his parents have seen much more success with him with these kinds of little games and routines than I have. The truth is, he still doesn't really include me very much. Now, two weeks ago, he really kind of started looking at me more often during games, and he's letting me tickle him now, and he's smiling when I uncover him when he's hiding in peekaboo or when when he goes in his room and gets under his covers. Now, if I go in there to get him, you know, I used to just kind of do it to <laughs> kind of corral him back into the other room because as soon as he saw that it was me, he would run back straight to his mom and we could get back on task. But now he's tolerating me which is a big, big, big difference than just avoiding me or, uh, you know, doing everything he can to not look at me and not include me. And so now I'm, I'm benefiting from some of this hard, hard, hard work that his parents have done in implementing these social games. And, guys, it has to be really, really frequently for parents to be able to uh, notice some progress and improvement you know you can't just play peekaboo two times a day and expect a child who really really struggles with interaction to make any kind of measurable progress so one thing that we needed to do was look at traditional games that he liked we also had to create new games based on his interest his parents have a fun little matador game that they do every night after bath now this is so so Typical, he will not do that game with me at all when we're there because I see him in the morning and he takes a bath at night. And his parents haven't even been able to really show me that because it's so tied to routines. It's out of context when we would try to get him to do it at a time other than nighttime and at his bath time. So you have to really, really work with parents again to excuse me, get those social games going often and uh, a variety. You may start with one or two little games, but, you know, that gets old for parents, too. You know, how many times a day can you really play um, pulling him on a blanket or uh, chasing him outside? You know, you just can't be in the backyard all day, every day. So you have to look at the variety there, and you have to help parents understand how to break those little games down in a step-by-step format so that they 
know that their child is improving so that they can see success. Because so many times in these little games, like let's say a game like peekaboo, if a kid's not saying boo when you jerk the blanket off his head, sometimes parents think, well, he doesn't really get it or he doesn't like this game. And we have to really show parents all the steps that happen before saying that little word is a realistic goal. You know, is he smiling during the game? Does he want to seem to play longer? Will he initiate the game? Will he give you the blanket to do to start the game? Will he look at you and look toward the blanket and use some eye gaze in that way? There's so many things that we can measure and that we can see and that we can count as improvement as we're playing these little things. And again, we don't have enough time to talk about all of that today, but if you need a good outline for that, check out uh, my book, Teach Me to Play With You, so that you can get some ideas for how to get those little social games going. That book has a day does not go by that I don't get an email from some parent around the world who says, thank you for teaching me how to play with my child. I did not know how to play these kinds of games with him. He would just walk away. I didn't think he liked them. I didn't think he liked me. And so it's so rewarding to get to hear from parents who take that tool and use it and get really, really, really good results. Okay, so that's the first thing we did is we got those social games going. And, guys, let me just tell you, it was a struggle kind of in July to get that going. And his parents are wonderful. And, truthfully, they were just at the the stage of I think they would have tried to do anything I asked them to do because they were so desperate for results. And they had tried some of this before, and we had certainly talked about how important social games were when I saw them for that initial consultation over a year ago. But his other therapists weren't really into that. And so they didn't spend as much time on talking about why that kind of play is important. You know, and, and uh, I gave them some other tools as well. They, um, The team that diagnosed them with autism recommended the Hannon materials, which are fantastic. And Mom has just devoured the book uh, more than words. And I think she's read It Takes Two to Talk. And so she's really understanding how important that piece is. You know, this is another thing she said. She had tried with her other team of therapists. They, since they weren't getting good results at home, I think it was Mom who suggested, "Well, let let me bring him to you. Let's see him in an office where he's not with me. So let's see if that'll make a difference." And it didn't. And that's never, ever, ever a good idea with a toddler <laughs> to remove a parent from therapy. And the reason that I say that is. Your, the parents are with the child all the time. You have got to involve them in therapy so that they can carry over those ideas. Now, you can be such a good therapist that you can get results in one hour a week with the kid and have very little participation from parents. Otherwise, you can be that good, and I know all about that. <laughs> but it is going to be so much better and faster if you involve parents and they know exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it, and they can duplicate those efforts when they're not with you. So um, that's the thing we did is really get those social games going. And so after weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, certainly there had been baby steps where even after the first week or two, they were saying, oh, he's smiling at me more. Oh, he's bringing me the blanket now. He wants me to pull him or he wants me to wrap him up or, he want, you know, he wants me to swing him. They were really recognizing more attempts to communicate on this little boy's part because we address the motivation piece, too. These are things he likes. He likes those gross motor games. He likes that sensory input. So that's what made those those strategies of getting those games going really, really important for him. We checked off. We eliminated. We addressed those other little factors that made that play important. And, again, remember, how is this important to playing with toys the other person usually has to model what to do with the new toy. And if a child won't interact with you because that's one of his core issues, you've got to tackle that piece first or you're not going to get anywhere with play, with talking, with following directions, anything. You have to really, really address that social piece first. The second thing we did is we really um, started – introducing signs and pecs to address his expressive goals. And it's been hard for this kid. And that's why when I talk about in in 
conferences, the hierarchy, you know, we address social skills, we address receptive skills and cognition, then we address expressive language. From a theoretical standpoint, that's exactly how we have to do it, but you can't really leave a parent feeling like we're not doing anything to address the communicating piece. And so that's why I say to parents, if we start some early signs and if, when we start PECs, uh, and the reason that we did science and PECs is see the parents reported limited success with both of those methods, but they saw enough twinkle of hope there that they weren't ready to abandon either one of those strategies. They had had some therapists who signed with them, and occasionally over the last year he had spontaneously attempted a sign or what parents had thought was a sign and he and with Pex they did some initial trading, some phase one trading and he did seem to understand that. So they were eager to revisit those pieces that they felt like that they had seen little spots, little glimmers of hope for that they may work. But I was really careful to say, you know, he's just not developmentally there yet. You know, we've got to really get this social piece going. We've got to get this attention going. I've got to get more going with his hands if signing is realistic for him. You know, we have to really figure out what he likes so that we can get big enough motivators for him to use pecs, you know. And I was really careful about saying all of that with we're going to try these things, but listen, we're going to tweak them as we go, and we may not see a sign or hear a word or have him do anything except, you know, assistance trading where you're really kind of doing it for him, you know, that that's we're going to get there with pecs and with signs and talking, but not yet. And so we put those beginning strategies in place kind of as a way to hold on to them so we're not completely ignoring that expressive piece, but it certainly has not been the main focus. So we, we started with that. And I will just tell you, after from July until October, he is starting – to sign all done pretty consistently, he's wanting to sign um, requests like open and more. We're seeing a few of those just begin to emerge, but it's been a long process. And again, I, I really feel like he's at a better spot to be able to do those things because we've worked on supporting that underlying skill development so that now those goals are more realistic. The biggest thing that we have done for him is to tease out what it is about playing with specific toys that does or doesn't work. And that's almost <laughs> the beginning sessions for me. It's kind of on a toy-by-toy, activity-by-activity basis. So I can kind of get a hold on what's going on with him. Why doesn't he like this? What What about this activity is so hard for him? so that we could figure out exactly where he's functioning um, regarding play. And so even though he's three, you know, you can do this a couple different ways. You can start with what a child should be doing and then look at kind of that developmental progression there and just keep backing down with developmental levels until you find that spot where you decide, ah, oh, that's where he is what he likes, that's what he can do, that's what he spends most of his time with already. Or you can do it the other way, kind of start at that zero to three months and say, hmm, does he like these toys? Is he doing sensory exploration? Check, he's doing that. Now let's move on to three to six months. Is he, you know, And kind of walk through the developmental listing or how, how play emerges with toys, kind of, kind of go at it from either end to decide where he was. Um, looking at a three-and-a-half-year-old, a, a three-year-old, what should they be doing? They should be doing tons of getting into dress-up, early little play with friends where it doesn't look as much like parallel play. It's more like cooperative play. And let me just say, my little guy's not doing any of that. He's just not ready for that. So we had to back it way up and figure out, again, what does he like to do, even if even even things that aren't really playing with toys. You have to kind of see, okay, what, what activities will he do? Well, for this little guy, he likes to watch movies. I've already told you that. And, again, he doesn't care if the sound is on or off. He just likes the visual feedback. 
I've already mentioned how much he loves gross motor play, like running and sliding. He loves sensory activities, like digging around in the bean box, loves water play. But he also had another couple of activities that you would just kind of look at and go, hmm, what does he like about that? He has this one math kind of toy that if you're looking at it, and again, I can hear some of you right now going, math toy, what do you, what do you mean? It's a toy. It's non-mechanical, so no light, lights and whistles and bells and whatever you want to call it. It's nothing. It's not electronic, but it's just a square, and it has numbers on it. I think it might even have some little simple addition and subtraction problems, but it has buttons that you can push, and he could feel the button move. And, again, I think this is a really, really older toy. I'd never seen anything like it. You know, and I'm sitting there figuring out, why does he like this? At first, I, I asked his mom, I said, so is he into ABCs and numbers? And is he that kind of kid? Because we know a lot of our little friends on the spectrum do have those restricted interests. They love numbers and letters and shapes and colors. And she said, no, I really don't think it's that. I really think for him it's it's the tactile piece. It's that the, he can touch it and push it. And I started really paying attention, and I, you know, said, Mom, you're totally right. I really believe that that's what it is because he's not really into other kinds of number and letter toys. You know, he doesn't like flashcards, didn't really care for books at that point although he loves books now, but didn't really care for it. You know, so we were able to really kind of isolate it. Um, and then we started looking at other things that he would do throughout the day, and we decided that he sticks, or at that point in July, stuck with an activity if some kind of component of put it in. Not to take it out part, because that didn't really seem to do it for him at that point, but put it in. He was trying to put things in, um, you know, toys. He, I can't even think of another good example of what he was doing at that point, but we decided, kind of mom and dad and I, based on what he liked to do and looking at his routines throughout the day, that that's something that he enjoyed. So I decided... Great. We're going to go to structured play tasks like Teach. And Teach is uh, a program out of North Carolina. It was, uh, gosh, I can't ever remember what Teach stands for when I'm trying to say it uh, in, during a presentation. Let me see if I can Google it real quick. Real quick. Um, oh gosh, I can't even really figure out what it what it all the T E A C C H stand for. The effective Autism, children, blah, blah, blah. Okay, hopefully I've not offended the teach people by not knowing their acronym. Uh, but structured teaching is what it is. It's really using visual tasks to get a kid to learn how to complete the whole thing. Let's just say that didn't work so well. <laughs> I thought I was going to be so brilliant that first session, and I took in so many of the things that have worked for me in the past. Those things didn't really take off like I thought they would. And again, that's why I want to share with you that all of therapy, this whole process is a trial and error with seeing, does this work? Does that work? You know, what about this task does he like? What doesn't he like? You know, and again, let me just say, I just was confident, confident that knowing that the put it in piece is what he liked about that that's the play that he liked, that's where he's functioning developmentally. I just knew that that was going to be so successful. And most of those activities bombed that first couple of sessions when I was really trying to get him to do it. Mom was working her hiney off trying to get him to do those kinds of things. And we we just kept trying different versions of those kinds of activities. Now, if you've never seen Teach Activities before, you can Google that. If you are on Pinterest, you can certainly enter Teach, T-E-A-C-C-H, and find out about what those structured teaching tasks look like. But let me just say I, I probably introduced 10 or 15 different 
tasks based on those those that approach that I thought he would really really like and and none of those seemed to work so that I had to kind of go back to the drawing board and you know what I cannot believe that we are at the end of this hour and I have way more material to talk about than to try to squeeze it into five or ten minutes to wrap this show up so we're going to continue this topic next week if you're a therapy geek like me, this probably feels a little bit like a cliffhanger, huh? With, oh, the teach activities didn't work. What'd you do? What'd you do next? Well, you're just going to have to come back next week, next Sunday, and we'll talk about what worked. But I love the show in setting the foundation for all of the things that we have to think about and all of the factors that are important when we're looking at something like why a kid won't play. And so uh, tune in next week, and I'm going to give you what uh, right now seems to be uh, the rest of the story. Thanks so much, and have a great week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.